At AGI, we take grain bin safety seriously. With Bin Manager, from the convenience of your smartphone, you can know the condition of stored grain without having to climb a ladder or stairs to monitor temperature and moisture. AGI Bin Manager is fully automated, meaning you can trust that grain is safe and in condition without returning to the bin to turn on or off fans and heaters. With advanced algorithms to optimize fan and heater controls, you can be confident that your hard-earned harvest will be in condition when it is time to sell. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Chelsea Bulls. Chelsea is a first-generation female farmer in Michigan. Chelsea and her husband, Rob, left their very cozy life to start their own 65-acre regenerative farm from scratch. Rob quit his job in the family business and sold most of his ownership shares to invest in a property for the farm dream. Chelsea was a middle school art teacher at the time and continued to teach until her second child of four was born to stay at home with them and help grow their business and the farm. Currently, they raise pastured poultry for meat and eggs and are working towards adding beef and pork to the farm. It was so great to meet Chelsea and hear more about her story, and I cannot wait for you to hear it as well. Before we get to Chelsea's episode, I wanted to set a scene for you. So it's busy season. There's a full crew putting in the hours to work together to care for the land and the animals. And y'all, they're hungry. (laughs) That's where you come in. That's where I come in. That's where we come in. Whether you're jumping off of the tractor, coming in from the barn, or rounding up the kiddos, you are the rock star on a mission to feed the crew. And let's be real. It can be a stressful time on and off of the field. So I wanted to create a free resource for you to have some simple tools, tips, and tricks to make this season a little less stressful. And the season that I'm talking about is field meal season. So I have created a free downloadable PDF for you with my best tips, tricks, and tools to make field meal season a little less stressful. So if you head on over to wildrosefarmer.com forward slash field meal guide, 
you can get your hands on this resource. Or if you simply scroll on your podcast player of choice, there will be a link to this PDF. So be sure to get your hands on that to help make this season a little less stressful. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Chelsea. Chelsea, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you today? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. I am looking forward to getting to know you better and learning more about your story. For my listeners who are unfamiliar with you, tell us who you are and how you got your start in agriculture. Well, my name is Chelsea Bowles, and I am a first-generation farmer. My husband and I got into this from zero experience. We started our farm roughly nine years ago now, and neither of us came from farming backgrounds. We both did grow up in rural America, though, not too far from where our farm is, actually. And we embarked on this journey because I had a lot of health problems And we discovered the work of the Weston A. Price Foundation and Joel Salatin sort of at the same time. And that started this really crazy adventure to get into buying food, sourcing food, figuring out what made us feel good and and how I could support my Um, immune system, all the issues that I had with my health seemed to stem from what I was eating, even though I didn't know that prior to learning about it. And so we started small, like supporting local, finding farms, and it was really difficult in our area. At this time, 10 years ago, there really wasn't a lot available locally. It was kind of like a black market almost. And so we decided that we should do it ourselves. I actually was a teacher and I taught uh, middle school art before leaving to help more on the farm. So we had gotten the farm in 2013 and we decided that after our second child was born, it would be better if I could stay home, be with them and help more on the farm. I mean, honestly, I was just hating going to work and knowing I couldn't be here doing all the things that we had set goals to. And we we're just very, very fortunate that I could do that and come home and do all the things with the farm and get that all going. You are a relatively young person. So to have health issues at such a young age, it can be really kind of scary to think that this is, you know, the foreseeable future for you. What were some of the warning signs or the telltale signs that for you, it was the food that you were eating that was not making you feel well? That actually started when I was young. When I was in high school, I had to do the awful glucose test because I was having a lot of headaches, chronic fatigue, that word wasn't used back then, but you know that's something that most people are familiar with now. And the, the blood test came back that I had hypoglycemia. And basically I got a printout that said, you know, eat lots of vegetables, 
make sure your carb, your grains are whole and eat lean meat. And that was it. And I tried it and it didn't work and I abandoned it. And then fast forward to college, I would, I mean, it was so bad. I would fall asleep in class. It didn't matter how much I slept. I had an art professor that actually threw like clay at my head when I would fall asleep. And this would be like a small gathering of people, not a whole, you know, stadium seating type class. Like I would fall asleep and you'd be within like four feet of me. That's how just easily it would happen. And I did not think it was food until well after I got into a car accident. Actually, I fell asleep driving to the gym five o'clock in the evening. You know, I had been well rested like you would think. And I fell asleep, drove up a light pole and crashed, like flipped the car over. And thankfully nobody was hurt, myself included. No other cars were involved. This angel of a man pulled me out of the car. I was like hanging upside down. And after that accident, I was like, there's got to be something going on here more than, you know, just like, I mean, a lot of the times other than the hypoglycemia, I was told this is just you deal with it. I mean, that's like what I was told. So I did until I was like, I can't just deal with this any longer. So I did, I mean, all the tests and basically the only thing that the conventional system could come back with for me was you probably have narcolepsy because I tested positive for a gene that basically you can have narcolepsy if you have the gene, but it doesn't mean that you have it. There's no way to prove that you do other than you fall asleep, right? So after meeting my husband and him at the time we were just dating, he brought home this book by Mark Sisson called The Primal Blueprint. And he was like, I really think we should look into this. And I'm like, there's no way that this is food related. And then when we started looking into the primal blueprint, like this whole other world like came out in front of me that I just had no idea. I mean, I knew that there was food that was better for you, but I mean, I grew up with lean cuisines and you know, all the things of the the children from the 80s and 90s came up with. And so I just had no idea. And then we started implementing some of these crazy at the time concepts to me. And it was pretty immediate how quickly I started to feel different, better, more energized, which then that was shortly after we had already bought our farm. So we kind of jumped from like doing better and then learning all these things and and really diving into the nutrition world and the farming world and then newlyweds and then let's throw a baby in there. So that all kind of happened over the course of like probably two years. That's a lot of things to happen in such a short amount of time and especially one so big as we bought a farm. (laughs) So talk to us about you know, those first couple years on the farm and those, all of those changes happening in such a short amount of time. What were some of your first steps that you took once you got to the farm? So our farm actually had no buildings, no house. We lived, it was like a 40 minute drive from the farm. So we originally just started like traveling to the farm to clean it up, to get, you know, the pasture kind of 
like all the overgrowth that was creeping in from the uh, property lines cleaned up. And then we built a barn because we needed space to put stuff. And we at first decided we were just going to build a house and travel back and forth until that was done. But then we realized that the neighbor was actually our friend's parents (laughs) and they had us over like we just were chatting and they joked about us buying their house next door. Kind of like, hey, you should just buy this place. And, you know, I think it was maybe two months later, I called my friend and I was like, so is there any chance your parents were serious about that? Like, you can just tell me to, you know, move along. But if they were, I would love to know. So fast forward, we convinced these really nice people to sell us their house next to the farm, which kind of really catapulted us into the actual farming. Because until then, we realized we just couldn't travel, have animals here and be 40 minutes away. And I was still working. Rob had left his job. He was involved in family business. And so we sold our, you know, a large portion of our shares to invest in the farm and other investments to help us support the farm because we weren't going to be working as much to do that. So then once we bought the house, we then started with chickens, the gateway drug to farming, I feel like. And that's where we've been. I mean, we haven't really gone beyond poultry because... We were so new and we just, you know, when a chicken dies, it is obviously sad when anything dies unnecessarily, but a chicken versus a cow, you know, that's a huge deal. And we just, because we were new, we, we were so smart (laughs) to think, you know what, let's start small with this and grow into it as we, as we need to. And I feel like we've kind of gone beyond that. I mean, I I wish we had pigs and cows now. That's always been the goal. Beef was originally what we wanted to do. But I'm really glad now, knowing what we know, that we took it slow and we really focused on one animal to figure it all out and make sure that we knew what we were doing. And the funny thing is like right now, thinking about there are so many people getting into farming right now. And I think it's amazing. I see so many people though, jumping in with both feet, all the animals all at once and were like us and had no idea what to do. And I, you know, I I watch and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm nervous for them because I just did chickens and we, you know, we had our fair share of losses and issues. And I just can't imagine jumping full into all the animals all at once not that people can't do it and haven't, but it's just, I'm just glad we didn't do that because I just feel like it would have been very, very difficult, especially with, you know, small children, which we were starting the actual farming with them in tow. Yeah. Well, and I liked what you said about how you started slow and you started small. I know me personally, if it were up to me, it would basically be Noah's Ark here and I would have a little bit of everything, but I know better (laughs) because of, you know, like you said, experiencing loss, no matter, you know, the size of your animal is really heartbreaking. But, you know, to have, 
you know, large animals and to have these losses, well, then what do you do with them, right? You There's just, there's no rule book in these things. And to call up your neighbor to say, what do I do with this? And, you know, I think it's really critical for people to do the research and to figure out, you know, the proper care for animals before they jump into it. You know, not only is it a disservice for you to have this as a loss for your business, but also, you know, if you're not able to properly take care of your animal and essentially give them the best life before, you know, they have their no good, very bad day, if that's where they're going, then I think, you know, it is much better to start small and to start with one even though it sounds really fun to have all of the critters. <laughs> yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I need to give all that credit to my husband because he was the one that was like, you know, I'm like, oh, there's goats on Craigslist. And he's like, no, we're not doing goats. And I bring up this and that. And, you know, because I think really what, what helped this for us was that I was pregnant or nursing for eight of these 10 years we've been here, almost 10 years. And so I knew my physical limitations. I knew I had to be spending more time in the house. I personally was not good at doing stuff with babies on my back and in the stroller. It's so hot or it's so cold. I just wasn't good at it. And I accepted that. And I was like, all right, you're right. If I can't help physically take care of all these crazy critters that I really want right now, then you're right. I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to let this kind of flow naturally. But I definitely wanted the Noah's Ark. I mean, I wanted draft horses and like things that don't make any sense for us right now. And that's good. And, you know, when we started, it's very different than now. I mean, social media was a thing, but it was nothing like it is today. I mean, I have I have a few, I would say, good friends that I have never met in person that are in farming. And I'm so lucky that, you know, they didn't think I was a total creep, you know, on their page. And then we ended up becoming friends and where we chat all the time. And I have people now that I can reach out to and be like, listen, this happened and I don't really know what to do. And what do you think about this? And when you come in, to farming with zero experience. I mean, that means for us, that meant like we didn't know farmers. We didn't know people in the neighborhood. We weren't from this area. You know, I had nobody to ask and, and our area is mostly row crops. So there are now there's more people that are doing the homesteading thing, but now we are the people that they're kind of looking to, you know, specifically with chickens. Cause I, I can speak to that now I feel good being able to share information on chickens. And it's just, you know, I think maybe a lot of the reason people are jumping in now is because there is more of that community online that they kind of feel like they have a safety net because they can reach out to more people. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. We always, like, if you sit back and think about social media, it is such a blessing and such a curse all at the same time. But I think, honestly, it's what you put into it and what you take out of it. And if what you put into it is community, the community is going to come out of it for sure. Growers have a lot to consider when it comes to storing grain. Are you getting the most out of your on-farm grain storage? 
Could an aeration model help to better determine fan, heater, or dryer needs? And what is the ROI if you installed a bin manager system to remote monitor and control in-bin grain conditioning? At AGI, we want you to ask the tough questions about how Bin Manager allows growers like you to know exactly what is happening inside your bins without climbing a ladder or stairs, or how you can benefit from remotely monitoring your grain temperature and moisture from a smartphone, or how fully automated fans and heaters can provide peace of mind all season long. Contact an AGI representative today for a free on-farm smart storage assessment. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. That's aggrowth.com digital. I want to jump back to your husband leaving or leaving part of his family business. And especially for you both who didn't come from a rural background and you weren't farmers, you didn't come from farmers, what was the reaction like from family members on either side that you are coming out of a family business and essentially you're getting into a new family business? What was that like for that transition? I think that like most people, they thought we were crazy. And I feel like I hear this from other people that I have met, you know, that have done the same kind of thing. But even though most of them think we're crazy, still do, we also received a lot of support. I mean, people are very excited, especially 10 years ago. This was not, you know, anything people had really heard about. I think there were a few people that were genuinely nervous for us. But for the most part, you know, they just thought it was fun and that, you know, we were so passionate about it that it was like they couldn't, there wasn't really anything bad to say or, you know, when you're just that excited about something, everybody around you kind of falls into line for the most part. So the the hardest part was, you know, the financial aspect and, you know, we could have lived pretty cozy, keeping on what we were doing. And it just, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's funny because we both love to travel. We used to travel together. You know, I, I actually moved to Maui after I graduated college and lived there for a year and a half. And I had assumed that I would be like a vagabond my whole life. And so I think one of the funniest things my dad brought up was when I was in, when I was in high school and I was about to leave for college. And I was like, I am never coming back to this like podunk town again. I'm a city girl at heart. I am never going to like, you know, be rural, a rural woman. And it's just so funny. He reminded me of that when I told him that we were buying a farm in rural America, you know, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. I guess things change. Well, and now you get to be a guest on the Rural Woman Podcast. So be sure to send this to dad. Hi, dad. (laughs) (laughs) I for sure will. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. One other point that you made that I want to go back to, and I want to thank you for making this point, because I know there are women that are listening to this who heard this and thought, thank God, me too. The moment that you talked about, you know, having these babies and knowing your limitations and saying that this isn't doable for me. 
I'm not able to do the work that I need to do with these babies on my back or running around causing a ruckus. I know there are a lot of women and mothers who compare themselves to other women online that are doing the things that they either wished they could do, wished they had the children to do that with. But I think sharing those and your limitations, sharing those limitations with people and knowing what works for you and what doesn't work, I think that's so important. So I just wanted to make a mention of that there and saying thank you for sharing that because I myself am not a mother, but I have the utmost respect for mothers and especially farm moms because I could not even imagine the added stress of not only keeping your livestock alive, but your human children alive too. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think there's an aspect too. So I'm on social media and, and that's primarily where I share, you know, Instagram specifically a lot of our life and how this all works. And I'm very careful about being as transparent and honest and humble about what we're doing because it's really hard, but I'm also trying to inspire people to like do hard things. That's like something I say a lot, like we can do hard things, but I also want to make sure people understand that I don't do it all one by myself. You know, I have a husband that is, you know, he's helping constantly. I mean, he literally does all of our laundry, like praise be for that. I know he's a rare, he, I am shocked. I am shocked. (laughs) That's what you get for being picky about laundry. He doesn't appreciate me leaving it in the wash for like three hours to rewash it later. So that's on him. But my point being that, you know, we can do a lot of things and I feel like there's a lot of people that feel good at being comfortable And then they see people doing hard things and it makes them sad that they're not doing other things. And I feel that I want to encourage people to go for hard things like cooking from scratch. It's hard. You have a lot. It's a lot of involvement. You know, you have to plan ahead. If you have a lot of small children, you work away from the house, like making sure you're ready for that. You know, for me, because of all my health issues, I had, I have to do that. I have a daughter who has celiac disease. I don't get to fall back on going to a restaurant or grabbing fast food because it's not safe for her. And so there's a silver lining in that, that I I have to do it. I don't have that fallback, but it's hard. You know, having our four children, you know, our youngest is going to be two in May and our oldest is seven and a half. So, you know, they're all very close in age. I know plenty of women that have children that close in age. And I never want them to see what I'm sharing and think that I'm doing it all with a smile on my face and my house is clean and everybody's happy. And it's like, no, like I share, I try to share the crying, the dirty floors, the dirty sink, the dishes everywhere, the failed meals. I mean, I get so passionate about that now. It's funny how the passion has changed. Like for food. It was that. And now like, I just really want to encourage people to grab those things that are hard, but know that they're hard. And it's okay if, you know, you're not the mom that takes your kids outside and does gardening and smiles and everybody's happy and there's, you know, rainbows and sunshine. 
it's not always like that for everybody. So I try really hard to, um, to show that part. And I, I appreciate that about people. And I appreciate the genuine uh, sharing of things. And I know with social media, you can be as genuine as they come. And, you know, I still believe that you should have a life off of social media and whatever you're sharing, whether that's your farm brand or your personal brand or whatever it is. And I, I have had to take a step back and especially I would say over the last five years and really look and realize that not everybody's heart is going to look the same. And some one person's heart is going to be really easy for the next person. And, you know, I think as long as we acknowledge that and we know that when we're sharing and when we're building communities and all of that kind of thing, I think it can be really easy to pass judgment and think, well, why can't you bake a loaf of bread every day kind of thing? It's like, well, I typically only bake a loaf of bread when I have insomnia. And if I have nice bread the next day, it's because I haven't slept. So (laughs) would I rather have fresh bread or sleep? I'm probably going to go with sleep on the day that uh, I need it. But yeah, I just, I think, you know, in our community of rural living, I think there are just so many possibilities of how people can mold and shape their lives. And I think it's going to look different for every single person. And depending on where you live, what your operation is, you know, the the privilege that we have, like it is, it's going to be different for everyone. And I just, I love learning from people and I love seeing what they do. And instead of looking at it as I'm jealous or I'm sad, I don't have that. I look at it as I hope they're living their best life and this is what brings them joy because that's what I hope people look at me like when I'm walking down my ro- the gravel road in my Crocs and I've spilled coffee on my sweatpants, all of these things. Like I might look like a hot mess, but I'm living my best life here in my Crocs and dirty gray sweatpants. So, <laughs> Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, you know, social media, like you said, it's a blessing and it's a curse. And I, I, I mean... I'm newer to this to the scene. I mean, the farming, you know, we've been doing for about 10 years, but the the intense sharing has really for me only been in the last two years. I mean, I was doing it, but not like I treat it like a job now because it is. But I this is not lost on me that my job is basically on social media, but I also worry about social media and like for us as humans to be seeing so much so quickly, that's not normal, you know, for humans. And I wonder how my role in all of that plays for people, because like you said, I don't want to make people feel jealous. I hope to inspire, but even for me, looking at other people that are doing things that I wish I was doing already and think, cause I struggle with that for sure, because you know, we've been doing this for 10 years and we only have chickens and we, you know, we sell our product locally, but in my mind, I thought we would be so much further. And I see people that have come in so much later than myself and are doing so much more. And so I, I have to take a step back from social media and remind myself, you know, of my journey and how different that was, you know, for us from them. And I hope that people 
are doing that, but I, I worry that they're not, you know. But that's why we're sharing stories like this and we're having conversations like this in a public platform, even though we're sitting in our respective offices across, you know, North America from one another. But that's why we have these conversations and that's why we have these kinds of platforms is to share what our real life stories are. And especially in agriculture, when you could be doing something the complete opposite of the person that lives next door to you, and yet you still are brought together by the fact that you live rurally for women in agriculture, that you are a part of feeding the world and your family and your communities and all of these things. So I always try and bring it back to that, that we are, you know, we're doing the best that we can. And, you know, for how people interpret and they interact with their own social media and their relation to that, it's on them. And I hope that they have a healthy boundary. And if not, I encourage you to get one because uh, <laughs> it's good for everybody. I've had to do it and I'm sure you've had to set those boundaries for yourself and you just go from there. Yeah, that's very true. I want to talk about your chickens because I myself had my entry into the livestock world with something a bit bigger and it was goats. Everybody said that their entry was chickens and I skipped that and just went straight to the goats because frankly, I think I'm a little afraid of chickens. They're little dinosaurs and I'm a little afraid of them. So tell us the breed of chickens that you are growing, what you're growing them for and how they live their best life on your farm. Okay, so this is a great question right now because we actually just switched breeds. Before this year, we've mostly done the typical Cornish cross broiler. And the goals for our farm have always been to raise the best that we can in the best way that we can afford to. And after several years of the Cornish cross, I just didn't love them. They don't grow all their feathers in because they are using all of the energy to put on meat quickly. And so I was honestly just kind of over it. Like I, I almost felt embarrassed, like showing people like, here are my chickens. And they're like, why are they bald? I'm like, that's just the way this breed is. And so we started looking into something a little less in the, you know, production model, but not necessarily a heritage breed. I would love to raise heritage breeds, but people aren't ready for that. It's a lot of work just to get people to buy local or something that's not in a grocery store. And so the heritage breed doesn't come with a lot of meat. It takes a little bit more finesse in the kitchen and it, they cost more because they take longer to raise. So, you know, a heritage breed is going to take anywhere from I mean, typically 16 to 20 weeks to raise to a proper size. The comparison to Cornish Cross is they're seven to eight weeks. And so we're kind of going somewhere in the middle. We decided to go with a, the Rangers. And those can be called Red Rangers, Rainbow Rangers, Blue Rangers. There's basically the Ranger is the key to that breed name. The rest is just like color variation. And they take roughly 10 to 11 weeks to grow out. I really love them. We did a comparison last year. We raised both side by side and they just, they forage better. They seem happier. They 
are, you know, they get to wait pretty quickly. I mean, that extra three, three weeks we decided wasn't, it was worth that to us to have a chicken that we were really proud to show people and to kind of take baby steps away from the commodity standard, I guess. So that's our meat production. And then we also do egg layers and we have about, oh, I honestly don't know, anywhere from two to 300 try counting meat layers. It's it's not easy. If you go in at night into your coop, you can, but we haven't done that in a little bit. But we raise a different variety every time we order. And so we came up with this idea because when you have an egg layer and they're done laying productively, we and we take them to the processor and they become stewing hens. And that's around two years old for us. That's what we decided was our cutoff point. And we used to just raise Rhode Island Reds. They're excellent layers. They're super nice. We loved them. But then it started getting difficult to decipher who was ready to go and who was staying. And so I came up with this plan that we order a different breed twice a year. And then that way we are always having some rotating out and then some coming in, you know, in pullets, which is like the first 20 weeks old as they're considered pullets and they lay the tiny eggs. So right now we have Rhode Island Reds. We have beige, I think they're called beige buffs white cross and one other, oh, brown leghorns, which I'll never get again. I decided to try like more the industry industry standard, which is the white leghorn, but they had the brown leghorns. And it was sort of a, I'm not going to lie, a a COVID panic buy because (laughs) I wanted to make sure we had chicks and all these people were like buying up chicks. And that was the only breed I could get. So I bought them and they're horrible. I I will never get them again. So... (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) Well, that's so smart to buy the different breeds and kind of have that rotation. Because like you said, how would you know if you have this many laying hens of which ones, unless you are really committed to tracking each and every one of them, which... Yeah, you have to get those like leg bands. And we did that. So they're like the colored leg bands. And we did that, but to go out there at night and do it because you you know, you're not going to catch them all. And then you still have to be like, is this one old enough yet? Or because you don't want to do it too early or they fall off. And then they eventually do fall off. And you're like, oh, I feel bad. I probably sent some away too soon. Or you have like the handful that's probably five years old. You're like, how have you been here this long? The freeloader. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So this, yeah, it's great. And I, you know, I'm kind of, I'll pat myself on the back. I came up with that all on my own. I hadn't seen anybody else do it. I'm sure other people do it, but it was just like, let's just try this. And it's really been successful for us. Yeah, that's amazing. What would you say have been some of the biggest challenges that you have faced in starting your operation to where you guys are now, nine years later? Uh, Predators, for sure. You know, we've had our taste of all of them raccoons, opossums, which most people don't think those things like chicken. And I'm here to tell you, everything likes chicken, everything. Weasels, hawks, and neighboring dogs, and one fox. We've never had issues with the coyotes, although there are plenty here. And I think the word, oh, rats, that's the other one that you would never suspect. The worst 
issue we had was with rats, which we didn't learn that till after the fact, but we have an old horse barn that we converted the stall into our brooder and it worked for a couple years. Our first like two or three years, we had no issues. And then one year, ironically, <laughs> the day after we brought home our first livestock, our dog, who was you know, a puppy. So she wasn't even guarding really. But the day after we brought her home, we had a hundred chicks in our brooder at night. And when we went out in the morning, there were seven. There was no blood. There were no dead birds. They just were gone. And we couldn't fathom what that could have been because we've seen all the other predators. And we learned that rats will take and shove them down in their little nasty rat holes and take them away and feed off of them underground. And I've read stories of people could hear their chicks in the ground. I know. Horrible. That's so bad. Yeah. It's like, like creepy horror movie, right? But with rats and it's just awful. And so that, you know, pushed us to make new brooders and not (laughs) that rats or weasels could get into. But bringing the livestock guard dogs really changed things for us. We got our first one. Oh man, she's, she's almost, I think she's six now. And the thing about guard dogs with chickens, people don't understand is that they're not, they don't bond with poultry. They guard the area that they're supposed to guard, but they don't bond like with goats or sheep or cattle even. So sometimes it takes a little bit longer to train them. So our our oldest dog, Miss Ruby, she didn't, she wasn't safe with the birds alone for three years. And that was very frustrating. We loved her and she was great, but it was just a long road to get to where we trusted to leave her out with the birds and she wasn't chasing them. And when that finally happened, it was like, we struck gold. It was like the best, like such a relief. And so two years after we ended up getting another one, because we didn't want to have to wait until a new, like if she had, you know, passed away, we waited until she was too old and then we're going to have to start it all over and there'd be a gap in that guard time. So we were smart and got another one and he's awesome as well. He's going to be two. He's almost the same age as our son, which is cool. And he probably will be ready sooner than she was. So that's exciting. But yeah, predators, hands down, like, I mean, even to this day, like they'll find a way to escape whatever, you know, we've got planned for them and get in and kill something. It's never ending. It's so interesting to me of all of the different predators that just seem to come out of nowhere you will have them one year and the next year they will be gone or you've never had anything before. And then all of a sudden it's there. I want to share a fun fact real quick in case people listening don't know this, but in Alberta, we don't have rats. We are rat free in Alberta. And I cannot remember the year that that became a certified thing, but we are rat free. So I personally, the only rat I have ever seen is when I was dissecting one in biology in high school. (laughs) So the fact of when people tell me about rats, I have no concept of what they physically look like in front of me. So that also terrifies me. Uh (laughs) (laughs) They are gross. I mean, they are just, yeah, we have lots of cats now too. So that helped with the rat population. And, And I 
you know, I just just watched The Biggest Little Farm for like the 20th time. And I just love that movie so much because what they did was really give a platform for finding the balance in nature and working with it. And I think that that's, I mean, that's so important. And it's, you know, uh, uh, people who get into farming, you're going to, you're going to be battling these things. And it's, I mean, let's be honest, it's because things are out of balance. I mean, there are 250 chicken dinners out there. That's not normal in nature. And so, you know, the predators are going to show up because they're, you know, they can't find 250 chicken dinners anywhere else. And that whole balancing act is, I mean, it's never ending. I feel like even people who have been doing this forever, like you said, all of a sudden you'll have a predator you've never even heard of and or known it was in your area. Hopefully that never happens to you with rats. But but <laughs> yeah, that balance is, is tough. For sure. Chelsea, what are some of the biggest things that you are proud of, of happening on your farm over the last almost 10 years? It's going to sound funny, but creating a website. <laughs> That's big. <laughs> I am not tech savvy. And it's funny because my husband is like that. He kind of did all that kind of stuff with the family business. And because I was pregnant and nursing, I was in the house more. So during naps and when I could, I started to take on that, the back end of the business and creating a website was like a huge hurdle for me. I'm actually doing it again with a brand new one because I, I'm a glutton for punishment, but doing that kind of stuff, which is not what I wanted to do with the farm. Like I want to be outside in the dirt and I want to be, you know, right in there getting the chickens and doing all that stuff. But again, I learned my limitations and I just can't do it. And so I'm proud that I've done the back end stuff that I've done, even though I didn't want to and don't always enjoy it, but I'm finding joy in that journey. That is the most important part. And it doesn't matter what it is you're doing on your farm, whether it's you're outside with your livestock or growing crops, or if you're inside the house building a website, you have to find joy in what you're doing. Because if you don't, then it can be quite miserable, regardless of what it is. Oh, yes. I mean, that's that was a a hard lesson for me, I think, in the beginning. It took me a few years to realize that you never arrive. You're never going to arrive to this point where you're like, I've done it. It's done. I am this and I am that. You just have to enjoy that travel time to these goals you think you're going to reach and you will, but that's not the important part, especially if you are angry and nobody wants to be around you as you're trying to achieve these goals. And I was, I mean, I was there for sure. You know, it was really hard in the beginning when right after I quit, you know, my husband, and I had to really hash it out and be like, is this really what we want to do? Because you don't act like this is what you want to be doing. And, you know, and working with your husband, I mean, that's a whole, you could do a whole podcast on just figuring that out. And I I guess that would be my second thing that I'm pretty proud of is that we were able to figure that out. It was hard. I mean, I think people who are really close to me don't understand how difficult that was trying to be 
you know, in a romantic relationship and business partners and figuring all that out was, it was, it was tough, but we did it. And man, did it feel good when we finally got that groove of enjoying the journey, being able to lean on each other and, you know, being able to push each other in a positive way. Yeah, for sure. Kelsey, what are the plans for the future? So we've got the chicken thing down (laughs) and so we sell locally. We do, you know, people pick up from the farm and then we have a free like drop service to a few people's homes that are so nice to let us hope, you know, to host us and have people just pick up from their driveway. But I have big plans to build a farm store so that we have, I mean, people really just show up and I put their order in a cooler and they pick up and go. I would like to be more connected to the people that I'm selling to. I am a people person. I love chatting to people. I love sharing all this stuff with them. And so I just have this dream of this cute little farm store where I actually have hours and people can come and shop. I am also toying with the idea of shipping within the state of Michigan. We use a processor that I can't go out of the state of Michigan, and I don't really plan on using a USDA inspected one. We did that before, and I just really enjoy the personal connection to this processor that, you know, we've built a relationship with. And so if I can ship in Michigan, that would be awesome. I'm going to be doing more events. I did a farm to table event four years ago and we just loved it. I, like I said, I am a people person. I love having people out here to see what we're doing. And so we're going to, I haven't actually really shared this, but we are planning on doing a dinner this year in the fall. And um, I'm really excited. I'm working with a chef that I knew in the past and she's wonderful. And she also has a farm. And so we really jive with our vision for this thing. But the big goal for actual like animals on the farm is this year is to get this darn fence done. We have been putting cattle fence up for, I mean, 10 years, like a little bit here, a little bit there. And, you know, Rob and I really sat down just the other day, actually, to talk about, you know, what we really want this to be. We want it to be a business, but we really do want it to be a little bit more of a homestead as well, like things that are for us. Cause we don't up until this point, everything has a role and it's not a pet, you know? And so not that we're jumping to have pets, but I think we're, we're done having babies. And so I would like to settle into giving the kids more fun. I mean, chickens are fine, but they're not fun. Not like having sheep or goats or, you know, like they get old. So we're hoping to get that fencing in and we can bring, start bringing in the, the big animals that we've been wanting to do. Obviously we, we still have a lot of information to get on that. I mean, we've been reading and learning, but until you bring a cow home, like you don't know. And so we'll probably start small, just like with the chickens, like get a few and go from there. And I would love have a dairy cow. I mean, I am that person that really wants one, like all the other people that have them. But again, I've been smart. And actually my husband was like, no, mm -mm, (laughs) not doing that. And so one step towards that is that we're remodeling this like weird space in our basement into a walk-in cooler. And 
it's basically like a step in my mind towards a dairy cow. So I have room for all this luscious milk to go. <laughs> there you go. Just one step at a time. Yeah. One step <laughs> at a time. That's so great. Chelsea, it has been wonderful getting to know you better today. And I think we've had some pretty good conversation, I would say. But uh, my last question for you is what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? Well, I think the most rewarding is connecting people to their food. And we didn't even really talk about much of that, but I get so excited when I receive an email or a letter or a phone call, or I run into somebody and they've had our product or even if they've learned something from me online and they're like, I just love what you're doing. I just love the connection you're making with the food, with your family and kind of getting back to, I hate to say a simpler time because there's nothing really simple about what we do, but it is different. And it is just so rewarding for me to, to hear people's excitement for what we're doing even though we're not that big. I mean, we're a pretty small potatoes farm right now and and that's fine. And so whenever we do find somebody that is just as excited about what we're doing as we are, it's just, it means the world to me to hear from that and, and how it's changed. You know, I don't want to say changed their lives, but I've had people say that to me. So I guess it has because either they, you know, could it, I mean, I have a, a customer who, couldn't eat store-bought chicken, it would make her itch. And so she found us and she can eat chicken again. You know, I have people that can't eat eggs with soy, you know, chickens that are raised with soy in their feed and we, ours don't have soy in their feed. And so they're just so excited to find a way to eat nourishing food that's just around the corner, which is, it's just great. I just love hearing all those stories. It's the fact of feeding people. I think it's just so rewarding because food is something that we all need. And it feels good to be able to provide people with things that they need. So that is a great answer. Chelsea, for people who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? I spend a lot of time on Instagram. My handle is at The Grazing Life. I have a website, which is the same, thegrazinglife.com. And hopefully soon that will be, my new one will be finished and it will be a little more interactive. I'm, I'm really trying to put more focus into the spaces that I own, like a website so that I have sort of a base camp for all the information. Because sometimes, you know, with social media, there's a lot of things that could be said about it, but it's not easy to search for information. And when I make content, you know, I'm trying to make content that is evergreen and that is useful. And so it gets kind of hard to find all that. So I'm really working hard to make a, like a real blog and have that be an easier place to access the stuff that I'm making. Yeah, for sure. I will link all of those in the show notes. And when your episode comes out, your new website could be live and it could be beautiful. It's beautiful already. I was already looking at it. So, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you again so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I was so much, I was really looking forward to this and I, it didn't disappoint. I'm glad. 
Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim & Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story.